Another episode of Throwing Wrenches. This is Eric Stahl. And I'm Daryl Scott. Thanks so much for being with us once again. This is a special episode. We had told you guys a couple episodes ago, maybe uh, warned you, that uh, we were going to have an episode that was going to be special to German car fans. And uh, this interview with George Barris of Barris Motorcars is that episode. And if anybody was interested in automobile history, uh, what it's like to be inside the dealer network back in like the 50s, 60s, 70s. This is a fascinating glimpse into that time period, kind of a, a step back through uh, through history, if you will. We're very, very thankful for uh, George Barris uh, and his uh, hospitality and uh, talking with him a little bit. That was It was a great interview. Yeah, it was kind of funny. Uh, George's grandson was in the dealership a while back, and uh, I didn't know who he was. And so the, guy, the kid said, oh, I'm not paying for the bill my grandpa is. And like, okay, well, I hear that all the time. And so this gentleman called me and said, this is George Barris. And sorry, George, that's a terrible, terrible imitation. But anyway, <laughs> actually, I don't think it's not that bad. Anyway, uh, George Barris, George Barris. It starts rattling around my head. I'm like, I think I know who this name is. I, I, we know Mitt, uh, his his cousin, as we found out later, I think. Yep. Uh, and so I mentioned something to uh, my boss here at Forts, and he said, George Barris, see, that's Barris Motorcars. That they own Studebaker and uh, they, Packard. They're the yeah. history of automobiles in Pekin, and I'm like, whoa, that's pretty cool. So, um, one thing led to another. I talked to you, and I said, hey, we should see if we can get this guy on the show. And it seemed really weird. George is 93, right? Okay. Yeah, he's up there. So I, I I had to give him the elevator speech at the front desk at the dealership and say, would you like to be on our podcast? Not even knowing for sure if he'd even you know, he could be a cantankerous, cranky old guy. But he was super nice, and he rolled out the red carpet for us. He really did. And as being one of the early Mercedes-Benz uh, retailers here in the United States, he really had an interesting story to tell and spent a lot of time going through some of the nitty-gritty details. So if you're a car nerd, German car nerd, or you just appreciate history, uh, it, it's well worth the listen. So enough of our yakking. Here's our interview with George Barris. Yes. All right. We are honored and privileged to be in the home of uh, Mr. George Barris. Barris Motorcars in, in Pekin, what lines did you carry when you were at, at, at the top of, of your game? What kind of cars? Well, we had, from the start, we had Stud- uh, Packard in 53, and then we had Studebaker in 54 because we needed a low-priced car. And Packard went out of business in 59, and then we were forced to, to look for another brand. And fortunately, with the Studebaker situation with Mercedes-Benz. They uh, allowed us to be a sub-dealer back in 1957, and that led 
to us being a full-line dealer in 1961 when the dealer in Peoria Heights decided that he wanted to go another avenue. And this led us into a completely new line of of automobiles that we never had before, Uh, a line of foreign cars that were probably rated uh, among the top three or four in the world. But uh, the uh, the volume in those days was very low because they didn't even have an automatic transmission or power steering. They had four on the column for shifting and a heater and a sunroof and a AM radio, and that was about it. And then finally they decided that they would have to come the American way. And in 1966... They came out with a car that really was made for America, and after that, they, they really took off, and sales boomed, and uh, a lot of people changed their thinking towards import cars, and the quality was very high, and uh, the, uh, the the car was just made for America. And then we got into the diesel phase when uh, the gasoline prices shot up and there was a shortage and all of a sudden the diesel was very very popular in America and as a result of that uh, we just couldn't hardly get a diesel car they were very very much in demand and uh, from there we we had a chance to get Peugeot which was uh, a noted French car with a diesel engine there was Peugeot and Pekin Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. That's yeah. amazing. And uh, we sold that that car pretty well. It it did 35 miles a gallon with a gasoline engine, huh. but four cylinder. Yeah. But uh, it was very well made too. But uh, let's go back uh, to to like your roots in Pekin. Are you born and raised in Pekin? Born and raised. Yeah. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> so from Mitt and from some loose conversations I had. The family had a family business in, in Pekin before the car business? My father came over here in 1918 uh, to meet his brother who had the uh, Princess Candy Kitchen. And as a result of that, uh, that was a high school hangout, the soda fountain, homemade candies, taffy apples. In fact, we made 3,000 <laughs> taffy apples every Pekin High School football game at home. Holy smokes. Wow. And sold them for a nickel to the boys club who sold them for a dime to customers. There's some there's some profit margin in there. That's 3,000 taffy apples. I can't even imagine dealing with that much taffy. It's ridiculous. It was my job to dip the, put the stick in the apple and dip it in the taffy and put it up on the wax paper. That's great. But... The uh, the princess was quite a quite a popular place. In fact, at World War II, that was the last place a lot of the fellows left was the princess after they left home. And then when they came back, the first place was the princess, and then home. You could probably see about everybody you knew That's in right. Pekin right there. It was the most used telephone number in the city of Pekin, one eight three. In those days, we had telephone operators. Yeah, and that one was always jamming, huh? Uh-huh. Oh. But that's where all the kids would sit there and order nickel coke and 
sit there for two or three hours talking. That's <laughs> where, awesome. Where in the city was it? What That's the, where the Chamber of Commerce is now, Chamber 402 Commerce, okay. Court Street. Okay. Yeah, one thing I figured out about George, he seems to know, he remembers every address. And you, you, Are you a numbers guy? Do you remember that kind of stuff? Oh, a little bit. Yeah, that seems like it. All right. It's helpful, especially when you're selling cars. Yeah. you got to crunch the numbers, right? So did you get in the car business, or did somebody else in the family get in the car business? How did, how did it start? Well, this is a strange story because uh, I'm, I'm an only child, and my father was very oriented to independent business, small business. And he wanted his son to, to follow in his footsteps. And as a result, he tried his best to put me into business. <laughs> 1948, he built the uh, Packard Garage as an investment down on St. Mary Street. And uh, Mr. Marklin was in there at that time, Marklin Motors. And when cars got a little more difficult to sell... Uh, after the first surge where everybody got a car after the war, mm -hmm. about uh, 1951, he decided it was a little too tough, so he sold out to Cecil Burling. And uh, he's a brother of Mel Burling, who was later president of the Herget Bank. Okay. But to uh, make a long story short, the, uh, the opportunity came up with Mr. Burling. He had a heart attack. And he wanted a younger man to come in and be a partner with him and learn the business. This was 1953, and my father thought, well, this was a golden opportunity to put his son in there as a <laughs> as a partner without any automobile experience. But I was supposed to learn from Cease, and unfortunately, three months later, he died of a heart attack. Oh, geez. So there we are faced with a Packer dealership in Pekin, Illinois, and no experience. <laughs> but I was stubborn, and I wanted to learn, and I thought this was my opportunity, and I stayed with it, and through thick and thin, and it was it was difficult those first couple of years. But so so back then, I mean, paint the the image of a dealership. Would you have like ten cars on the lot, or I mean, we had. This is almost a joke. We were right next to the Illinois Hotel. We had no used car lot. We had a place for four cars at the side of the building. And Lee Tosi would be always watching us for used cars so he could buy them. Yeah. But uh, our inventory in those days was very low. We had a five-car new car showroom, that, which was one of the nicest in Pekin. <laughs> and, uh that's that's where most of the new cars went, of course, and uh, we had a few around town because we didn't have the the room to uh, put them at our at our store. But different days, and most all of the dealers were were downtown. In fact, they were all downtown, and people would drop their cars off and walk to work. But that's <laughs> when downtown was really lively and everything. Yeah. existed around that. Yeah. You hear that a lot, no matter if it's Peoria or Rockford. or I mean, it doesn't matter. There's so many cities that kind of have very similar stories. Uh, what what kind of Packards would sell uh, in that time? Because well, that was we had the Packard Clipper, which was a straight-eight engine, and we did have ultramatic transmission. But uh, most of the people buy a stick shift in those days with overdrive, and that was twenty nine ninety five. And that was a lot of money in that those days. That sounds like tall money, because yeah. that, that was the kind of money you'd pay for a car in the 70s, right? 
Well, I think my 55 Plymouth, I got all the original paperwork for that. I think that went was like 1800 or something. But that was, you know, roll-up windows, no the flathead six, yeah. no radio. I mean, yeah. it was very bare bones. A Packard was still, in those days, still considered a very nice car, right? Very nice car. The biggest problem we had was that our competition had V8 engines, and we still had the straight eight left over from the 30s. Yeah. And a great engine. Straight but, eight. Uh, wow. Competing against the new V8, it was difficult. So in 55, they did come out with a new engine, new transmission, torsion level suspension. Was that air suspension or? Uh, no, we no. always demonstrated that in the showroom. We'd put our knee on the rear bumper, the bumper would go down, tick your knee off, the car would come right back up again. And that was, that was the only one in the industry at that time. Really? Real mm-hmm. nice ride. Was that, uh, what was the high, high end one? The Patrician? Patrician. Was, was that the convertible and? and we had, uh, yeah, several body styles on that, but, uh, that was a long wheelbase and those cars sold for $5,500 and the average salary oh, wow. of a person living in Pekin was less than that a year. So you can see how many cars that we sold in that price class. Sure. It was difficult. So in those days, um, I mean, was everybody in equal footing with, with the Chevy store and the Ford store all being like similar situations, just have like five or ten cars? I mean, was there any big stores at that time, or were you all kind of fighting for the no, same? No, they were all smaller stores because they just didn't have the real estate. Uh, Cottingham at the corner had uh, a place for used He had a used car lot there right the side of the building. And then on the second floor, he had a lot of his new cars. On the second floor? Mm-hmm. You had to drive up second floor. It's still there. It's pretty cool. Really? Mm-hmm. Nice layout. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. All right. They had gas pumps out in front of that dealership in 1915. <laughs> Seriously? His father had Chevrolet then. Well, gas probably wasn't that common. I mean, it was probably hard to find gas in 1915, well, you right? Went, in those days, you went to the dealership for tires, for gas, for everything. They did that. You didn't have all these other stores, all that. Really? Auto parts stores and all that. You had to go to the dealership. Yeah. that's. Funny. And they lost that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Every, absolutely. Everyone else has made money off the... Off the cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're fighting to bring that all back all the time now. We're trying to get the service, the tires, right. all that stuff back. I don't want the gas. I'll be honest with you. I yeah. don't want to deal with no, gas. You don't want the gas. <laughs> that sounds like a big headache. <laughs> Um, so Studebaker and Packard, I mean, it, the landscape in 1953 as a Packard dealer, Packard was kind of at the at the at the tail end of of their time, right? Mm-hmm. By that by that point, you also had the other independents. We talked you talked a little bit about uh, post war people getting their cars. The independents, the ones that kind of jumped on the newer body styles, the Studebaker, Packard, Kaiser, those types. Mm-hmm. So so it seemed like right after the war, people people still embraced. The independent automakers, Hudson, things like that. When when did things kind of start signaling that the end was near for the independent makes like Packard and Studebaker? Well, they they were in financial trouble, and as you remember, they tried to make it the big four, but it that fell through, and uh, a lot of people would have liked to seen that gone through because those were all good cars. They had very good ideas, <clears throat> good engineering. And a good following, but the uh, the money was with General Motors, as you know. They sold at one time over fifty percent of all the cars. Wow! And uh, the uh, smaller companies just were not in good financial position, and they finally had to 
go under. Yeah, that was before the federal government would jump in and help you out. Mm-hmm. Okay. There, there were no bailouts in 1958 or whatever. So Studebaker and Packard, they kind of went, and, and did they merge at one yes. point? 1954, they, mer- they merged. And, uh, of course, Packard was only around for just a couple of years because 56 was the last Detroit Packard. And then they were built in they South were Bend? They Studebakers or? with a Packard grill. Mm-hmm. I saw at a car show years ago a 58 Packard Hawk, mm-hmm. and I think there were 200 and some of them made. That's right. That's and I right. saw that I'd never seen that. Everyone's familiar with the, the old Studebaker Hawk, which was a beautiful car, but the Packard just kind of looked awkward. It had some different trim, like you said, and uh, but just the rareness of it was... Uh, it was at a, a car club up in the Chicago area, and the guy said they hardly made any of these. Nobody wanted them, and they were a hard sell. Mm-hmm. And, of course, people were leery about, I guess, buying something where there was no dealer network, things like that. But it, essentially, by that time, it was a Studebaker is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Interesting. It just wasn't a Packard. Yeah. Just a, another part of a Studebaker. But that's what they had to do to keep the name. Yeah. So how did how did Mercedes start slipping in with you guys? Well, uh, back in '57, they called upon me and many other dealers that were close to existing Mercedes dealers, and they asked us to be sub dealers in order to raise the volume of sales in the in the country, and that way we got to know Mercedes. Uh, we had the uh, jump on. The other dealers that weren't that close to existing dealers. When and you say when you say they, who who was they who came to you? Was it somebody at Packard Studebaker, or was it? It the, was it was uh, out of South Bend, Indiana. Okay, so it was actually their factory people. Mm-hmm. Okay, because was it Studebaker? What had the Mercedes Benz didn't have a dealership and distribution network in the states? Is that what it was? They did through Studebaker. Studebaker right. was the distributor. Okay, okay. but Mercedes Benz USA that was that was not set up until much later. No, that that came on in uh, nineteen sixty five. Okay, Studebaker was the distributor clear through sixty five. Gotcha. And in some areas, was it an easier sell than others in big big cities? I mean, oh, I, yes. I'm trying to imagine it post-war, post-World War II in America, I, I, would, I would imagine German makes would be a hard sell in some areas. No question. So we, what, what we was had, the success uh, story? We had people uh, even threatening to throw bricks through our showroom. Really? Uh-huh. When we first, but that was, just happened for a short time and... And when the Volkswagen came in, everyone was used to imports then. <laughs> wow. So describe kind of the average customer. If someone were to walk in and say, hey, I'd like to learn more about this, these nice German cars, um, what was the type of customer, the demographic? Well, we, were, we had uh, mainly the professional people. And uh, when the diesel came in, we had a lot of farmers. Really? Because they could use their own fuel tank and fuel her own car without paying road tax. <laughs> little, little tax evasion. Of course, in they it. didn't like to talk about that. But, yeah, that's why they started but, coloring it, right? But they, because they had diesel equipment, they, they were quick to buy a diesel car. Yeah. And that that was uh, quite a change in, in the thinking of people that always drove gasoline cars. When you became a sub-dealer, did, was there any buy-in or anything like that, or did they just say you're automatically... No, we, we didn't spend any money, and uh, we looked to the other dealer to advertise, and 
By the way, I sold my first one in 1958, and it was a four-cylinder diesel. I sold it to a, a railroad engineer yeah. who was a diesel man. <laughs> it had a radio and a heater. It took six months for that car to be built and shipped, and it was $3,800 less price. I can't even imagine. First off, we do everything digitally now, and we communicate with the factory. Yeah. And there was a time where we still had line printers that would tell us the cars were coming. But I can't imagine going back to the 50s and communicating with the factory with what cars you are going to get. I mean, you had to anticipate probably six months out to a year maybe, right? Well, we we were more or less at the mercy of the factory. But okay. uh, we had a better relationship in those days because the dealer network was so small. And... Uh, they, they really gave us very good service, and I could call South Bend and talk to them one-on-one, and you wouldn't think of doing that today with calling General Motors or Ford or anybody and talking to their executives. So It was a different world. Every, every dealer in the United States dealt with South Bend for Mercedes, mm-hmm. so the, the hub of Mercedes used to be South Bend. That's right. So where were the factories at uh, over in... Factories in Stuttgart. Stuttgart, okay. Mm-hmm. So the same as the Porsche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. You walked on one sidewalk, go to Mercedes, and the other to Porsche. <laughs> Interesting. So so somebody, uh, and I didn't think about this, especially in, in central Illinois, being Caterpillar, diesel, farmland. Yeah. I mean, people kind of understood and embraced diesel tech technology back then. Uh, what kind of cars were were equipped with those? With like the one was it a one ninety D or like what we was had the one ninety four cylinder, and we had a two twenty, and, and it gradually got up higher to three hundred. Then they put the turbo with it, which really was a great great combination. Yeah, and uh, they used that in the larger body too. 300 SD. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, those those cars are still driving around. You see a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we, uh, you know, Eric and I have talked multiple times. Like, at some point, it would be nice to grab one of those older diesels because I think in 50 years they will still be running. <laughs> it's just extremely well-built machines, it seemed like. Yeah. yeah we had a man that uh, had a million miles on his, and uh, he had, had a plaque from Mercedes. They even took him over to Stuttgart. No way. Oh, yeah. That's nice. That's back uh, in the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite an accomplishment, a million miles. Yeah. So was there like a fade out with Packard? Did did you basically lose all cars from them and just have to become dependent completely on Mercedes at some point? Or how did did that happen, that inflection? Well, we had had Studebaker up till 66, and then they went out of business. But... uh, in the meantime, uh, 63, the American Motors dealership was available in Pekin, and I couldn't wait to get my hands on it because they had so many great models and economical cars that more or less suited our area. Okay. And, of course, this has always been a Chevrolet Ford area. Mm-hmm. And so I was very fortunate to get that, and they sold very well for all those years we had it. So we had, had it for over 20 years. Yeah, so you didn't like hit like a spot where you were like out of cars and just had like one Mercedes sitting on the lot or anything like no, that? No, no. That's good. But well, it was close. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about uh, AMC dealers. I, I think everybody that you talk to of a certain era uh, grew up either their first car was a Beetle or their first car was a Rambler. 
I knew there were so many people that, that, that had Ramblers or old AMCs in their past, and they, they always speak fondly of them. Uh, can, you, can you describe some of the, the early AMC cars? Were they kind of in the similar vein as the Studebaker Scotsmans and stuff, mm-hmm. the, the kind of lower-priced price-value leaders? Yes, they had the, the American, and that was a very good seller for uh, people who wanted the true economy. But uh, the Rambler was so popular that it was the car of the year with Motor Trend back in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then they had the Rebel with the V8 engine, which was a hot car. Yeah. But they had a very good lineup. Station wagons were good sellers in those days. And they had big wagons and they had small wagons. You remember those Rambler American? I sold yeah. one to Larry Vogelberg Pekin High School because it was red and white. No kidding. They used. No kidding. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. So he, the leader of the band had, a, right. had an AMC. That's, right. That's great. That was his memorial of the day. Hey, um, when did you move to Auto Row? Well, we moved in 1978. Oh, so it was that late? I, I thought it was earlier than that. No, we uh, we had to. My father had to talk to my uncle, and uh, they switched buildings. My father had the building downtown, which used to be Court Motors' uh, used car lot, way back in the 40s, and it's a restaurant now. Oh, really? Uh-huh. And uh, he traded uh, that building and lot for the Illinois Hotel, which was decrepit and <laughs> falling into disrepair, and we tore it down. That was our used car lot. Okay. And then following years, a man across the street had a welding shop. He uh, retired, so we bought that, and then we stored our new cars over there. Okay. So we just ran out of room. Sure, and, yeah. Uh, I guess that would be the problem with the downtown dealership type atmosphere. You don't have enough space to show inventory or do service and you know do all that stuff. And people uh, in those days were looking forward to change. And since Auto Row was new, and uh, it, it seemed to be very popular with people. Yeah. And the downtown, as you know, was fading away. Mm-hmm. And... People didn't mind driving out to Auto Road to have their cars repaired, but yeah. not like the old days. When, when just kind of stepping back just one bit, when did the candy kitchen close? It closed in uh, in the fifties. Uh, my father and his and his brother sold it, and uh, a young uh, two young fellows bought it and worked real real hard on it. But in those days, people were in, in cars mm-hmm. going to drive-ins, yeah. and the old walk downtown. And get your ice cream, and so that was probably the decline of the downtown, mm-hmm. probably across the country. Once the cars were out everywhere, that's right? right. Yeah, cars had a lot to do with it. That's an interesting perspective. I didn't think about that, but yeah, people talk about Main Street in some big cities. You know, what was the decline there? Well, they built a mall outside of town, or they built retail, or uh, places like Sheridan Village, and well, then they stopped going downtown. Well, I guess that's true, but yeah, more people were mobile. More people had cars; they could go places, do things, and they didn't have to walk the same 10-block area yeah. to do their work. Well, I hang out at the candy kitchen when you go to Peoria and hang out at the, at the Lou's Diner right. or something, or drive-in, right? <laughs> yeah. So Another interesting thing in those days, the, uh, the merchants liked to park in front of their own places of business all day long. Yeah. So as a result, there wasn't any no place for anyone to park. <laughs> yeah. And that was another reason yeah. they, they 
left downtown. So back in those days, was it pretty strategic to be between Pekin and Peoria, right there in that stretch of road? Was there a lot of traffic going to Peoria? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, always has been. Yeah, the main thoroughfare. Mm-hmm. So in 1978, when you set up shop out and moved out to Auto Row, what was some of the 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 other uh, the dealerships in the area like? Do you, have, do you have some other competition at that point in Bloomington or Springfield? Uh, well, with Mercedes, we had Bloomington and uh, Decatur and Springfield. And uh, the biggest problem was Chicago because a lot of the uh, professional people uh, traveled got around and what they would do they'd get a price from me and run up chicago Sounds and of course all they do is just throw the price on the on the table and the guy said well i could beat that yeah so, so we lost them like lober or carl canals yeah, or one of yeah, those yeah the big yeah. ones yeah. bill bill canals bill canals yeah good friend of mine no kidding mm-hmm. okay lake forest like i used to see as a kid that any mercedes had that uh-huh. license plate frame on it it was funny or uh, what was the one in barrington motorworks Mm-hmm. That was another right. big one. That's right. I bought uh, Mercedes, my second Mercedes from Lober Motors, yeah. actually. No yeah, kidding. right downtown. Mm-hmm. It was a 420 SEL in late early 90s or whatever. We loved that car. My wife still talks about that car. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, 78, you move out there. And at that point, we've, we've talked about the, the age of diesel kind of coming coming in. You've already had the OPEC crisis. There's late 70s, early 80s, there was kind of another wave of, of OPEC stuff, wasn't there? where mm-hmm. gas prices shot up astronomically. Well, the biggest thing was the interest rate went to over 22%. Holy cow. Can you imagine that? And that's the reason I got anyway? out of business. Okay. There wasn't any way I could make 22%. Yeah. Impossible. Yeah. But uh, th- those were horrible days. You could put uh, your money into a CD at 15%. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Well, I don't know if I'll ever see that again in my lifetime. No, yeah, I I, not. not that I want to. Yeah. Uh, so, so that point, what's what's kind of become the the more popular vehicles to sell? Mercedes has branched out now as far as uh, you, know, you have full size sedans, convertibles, roadsters, station wagons. I mean, there's a, there seems like there's a they a have expanded their line so much since I was a dealer that if you had one of each model. You'd have a pretty good size inventory. Wow! When I was when I was a dealer, we were talking about five or six cars. Yeah, sure. And but now it's just unbelievable all the models they have. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I, I drive past Dennis and Chevrolet and I see the hundreds of cars out there. And mm-hmm. I mean, well, they bought my old building and tore it down. I I was around for that too. It was yeah. a year newer than their building. <laughs> was it no really? kidding? <laughs> Actually, that that Midtown store was bigger than it looked from the outside. From the road, it just it didn't look much bigger than like two houses side by side. But it was deep. It went mm-hmm. way back. Yeah. yeah. The um, so did you get to design that from the ground up? Did you get to pick mm-hmm. and choose how you wanted to lay that all out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. From years of experience, a service manager and I sat down and uh, we we did it with a contractor, of course, Kenny Thomas, who had built Denison's right next door. So okay. Just a year later that we built. So was it Denison Chevrolet then, back then? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. It, it was Heimbaugh Chevrolet, is Heimbaugh, that right? right. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd never even heard of that name. Down on South 2nd Street. Really? And Lincoln, too. Chevy hmm. and Lincoln? Mm-hmm. It seems well, he, both ends of the he, spectrum there. Exactly. Right? But he was the one that was fortunate enough to get Etzel. <laughs> is that fortunate? 
<laughs> my uh, my Packard, ex-Packard road man came to me one day. He was working for Etzel then and out of St. Louis, and he said, I've got a great idea for you, a brand-new car from Ford. This is going to take the industry by storm. <laughs> but he said, there's only one catch. You have to build a building, oh my. a separate building than oh. what you have. And I said, well, forget that. I, I don't have that kind of money to yeah. do that. Yeah. And Jack jumped in, Jack Heimbaugh, and uh, bought it. And two years later, yeah. it was gone. Okay, three model years and they're toast. Yeah. So that was one of the requirements originally. That mm-hmm. Ford Motor Company wanted, if you were an Edsel Sep- dealer. Separate building. Separate building. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a big, that's a big and epic failure. the building's failure. still down there. Where? Uh, on uh, South 2nd Street. 2nd Street? Mm-hmm. Okay. It was to, across the street. His dealership was on the... the uh, See West End and his uh, other new de- uh, new building was on the east. Now I'm going to drive through Pekin right now across looking the street. at old yeah. car dealer buildings. Yeah, we we already did that before we came out here. <laughs> so that's funny because you know a lot of dealers or family businesses that go down from generations. And I know as our manufacturer rolls out, they, and they say something like, "Oh, you need to update this building or build this if you want to get this car." I'm sure memories are back there of, of things like the Edsels and stuff like, "Oh yeah, great, you want me to do this?" And then two years later, you're going to just cancel this car line or do something like that. That those memories probably never leave you, do they? Well, that's that was a big thing with us because uh, they want, always wanted a dealer in Peoria, and in '77 I talked to my roadman and he said. It doesn't make any difference. You can build in Pekin or Peoria. We'd be glad to have a new building. You'd need one pretty badly anyway. And so we decided to stay in Pekin because we'd had our whole life in Pekin. And as a result, about two years later, they said, when are you going to move to Peoria? Oh, yeah. And I just couldn't get over that because they (laughs) they already made their decision. Yeah. Then they went back on it. Yeah. Of course, it more logical to have it in Peoria because of the larger city. Now, did you have some relationship with the Dealers Association? Uh, I heard maybe you were like a president of it or something like that. Mm-hmm. So was was that like Illinois Dealer Association? Yes. Uh, so when, out when out did, of Springfield. So how did did you were you there at the beginning of that or did you help start that or? No, I didn't help start it, okay. but. Uh, Harry Emerson, my good friend, a Pontiac dealer, was uh, active in it, and uh, he said, uh, I just can't take any more time away from business. And he said, uh, why don't you try it? And I said, well, I'll give it a try. Yeah. So uh, I was uh, selected uh, to represent Pekin okay. at the, uh, the uh, meetings down there. And then as time went along, they asked me to get on the... Uh, on the secretary and then vice president, and then they changed the name from president to chairman of the board. <laughs> the fellow that was the full-time man there wanted to have the the uh, president's title, so when he came, when he was our legislator, and uh, when he went in to talk about things that would benefit the car dealers, mm-hmm. he'd be the president. So, got it. Uh, so okay. we all said, "Well, what's what's the difference?" So, yeah. From then on, we were chairman of the board instead of president. So, um, I mean, we have blue laws in Illinois, which I love. Thank God, I, you know, I work in a car dealership. I don't have to work on Sundays. Uh, is, is it always been that way in Illinois? You can't believe how this evolved. Okay. <laughs> the dealers from Chicago went down to Springfield, and told Les Sander, our man down there, that they wanted to close up on Sunday because 
they were losing good salesmen. And uh, the rest of the dealers in the state thought that was a good idea, too, because they, they wanted off on Sunday. They yeah. got awful tired of seven days a week. So you guys have been open seven days a week. Oh, yeah. What year was that that they changed it? Uh, back in the 60s. Okay. Really? Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. So are there other states out there that still have dealers open on Sundays? Oh, yes. Fl- that's, Florida. that's one of the yeah. problems because uh, the people that live in those neighboring states will go over there on Sunday and buy a car. But the, it hasn't changed, and it's it's good for everyone because you, you need a day away from the business. Yeah, well, and I, I agree with the professional level. If you want to have decent people, you know, that, that have good good home lives and trying to make families right. and, sure. and be respectable community members – Give them one day off. Yeah. Right. You know. Well, and for the consumer, too, I think. If you drive around any car lot on a Sunday just to see, you know, I'm going to drive and see this new car that's at the dealer. Yeah. You go on a Sunday afternoon or evening, and the place is packed because they, people, husbands, wives, families, they're just kind of out looking at some of this stuff yeah. without the quote-unquote pressure of a salesman or salesperson coming that's, out. That's a, that's a great thing you, you just said because that is... Uh, one of one of the things that uh, one of the advantages because on Monday morning you get a lot of those people that would come in yeah. after being out there on Sunday. Yeah, sure. And uh, th- that proved to, to to be an asset for everyone. Yeah. What's funny about the blue law is I would have assumed that that was an old law that carried from like the 1900s and you weren't allowed to sell. The fu- the, it's funny to me that that you were allowed to sell cars seven days a week before the 50s. Yeah. That's crazy. Sunday was was not a good day anyway because it's a day, as you said, people like to just get out and look. Yeah, and go for uh, a Sunday drive. <laughs> you sold very few cars on a Sunday. So uh, what were some other interesting laws and, and uh, regulations, stipulations that being in the business back in the day um, had either evolved or things were different or things were easier? I mean, is there anything that comes to mind? Well... It's the uh, advent of the computer, which really changed everything, and uh, the uh, the level of of uh, activity with with the people that that were uh, accustomed to doing those other things in those days. That all changed, and to answer your question, it's it's uh, so many things the government has put on the the. Uh, the rules and regulations, the emissions, you all know about those things. But mm-hmm. but California is so different than everyone else. You can't sell a car out there unless it adheres to their rules. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's been uh, harder and harder, and the factories all know this, that's for sure. What, oh, um, when you sold cars, you probably weren't on floor plan, were you? You probably owned everything on the No, lot. no. Everybody was on floor plan. Oh, they were? It was very unusual to see a dealer that owned his inventory. Okay, I didn't know he'd if have, you... He'd have to be in the business a long, long time. He, normally, it'd be a Chevrolet or Ford dealer that that had the volume. Yeah, I don't, Do you know what floor plan is, Daryl? No. So, uh, dealers don't own the cars in a lot. They actually, like our manufacturer, has their own financing arm that's there to help out so the manufacturer, the dealer can have reduced rates on all the cars in a lot, but every car on the lot is costing interest per day. It sits there. So, so okay. So people talk about, oh, it's been on the lot. Maybe they want to get rid of it. Yeah. That's that's what it's about. Yeah. So you okay. try and carry averages and stuff. But yeah, floor plan is just the dealer's term for you know financing the cars that are sitting out there. But I I would have thought back then everybody floor plan was like a new thing in the seventies or eighties or something like that. 
Well, what, an interesting thing, uh, just a sidebar on this, uh, back in, in, 50, in the 50s, uh, 24 months was your maximum financing. Oh. And I can still sell. remember the day when I got a call <laughs> and the finance company, it was Universal CIT, called me and said, we're going to do 36 months now. And I, oh my, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> that's forever. <laughs> I don't know if that's good though. That means you had a car sitting on a lot for three years though, right? That's right. But, uh, in those days too, the bank was, was not very, uh, not very ready to do business on a floor plan basis. But okay. they finally got into it and then they started doing the floor plan locally. Okay. So I had my floor plan with, with a local bank. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Well, and you're talking about the, uh, the the payment terms for new cars back in the day. If someone were to come in and say, hey, I like this 300 SL or whatever, uh, you know, let's talk about financing, what were the terms that people would usually get? You won't believe this, but it was almost all a cash business on Mercedes. Those people had the money, and they didn't finance. <laughs> there were no th- no such thing as eighty four month per, uh, payment. Wow, I can see that though. I, it, I did want to tell you one thing that a lot of people ask me, and they still don't realize this: that they think that that those cars are shipped out, and then you pay for them when you sell them. Mm-hmm. But it's the other way around. Those cars are paid for before they're ever shipped. Okay. McDonald's wouldn't give you a hamburger, and then you pay for it afterwards. So the factory's already been paid when it rolls off the assembly line. Yeah. So your your floor plan uh, man at the bank would have to write a check for those cars yeah. for that to be shipped. Otherwise, they wouldn't be shipped. No, absolutely not. That makes sense. And then six months... You have six months to sell them, and then you have to pay 10% of, of the value of the car at, at the end of six months. Oh, are you serious? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's so a good you don't want to let your inventory no. sit around. That's that's an incentive to sell, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So when you built mid or when you built the Barris Motor Cars building on 29, you had AMC and you had Mercedes. Was that the only two franchises? No, I had uh, Peugeot then, too. And, and Peugeot. Mm-hmm. Nobody talks about Peugeot. Peugeots were great little cars. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine in high school who bought one, and it was it was a wonderful little car. It had every creature comfort you could ever want, and it was a gas one, but they also made a diesel, right? Oh, yeah, that's why we took it, because of the diesel. It was a 405. Yeah, I think his was a 505. The 505 was a big one. The big sedan. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, there's a guy in the Heights that's got an old uh, mid-'70s diesel uh, it's a dark, dark blue 405 sedan running around, and it, it makes a great racket, but oh, yeah. it's it runs and runs and runs. It, I think that's another one of those cars, a, a classic European diesel car like a like an old Mercedes that probably will run in 50 years. So uh, oh, we por- forgot one one make a car. What's that? Jeep. Oh yeah. Jeep was part of. Uh, right. I, was, I, I was a Jeep dealer in 1976. And that was because of American Motors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they they were really great to have. I, I imagine Especially so. when those snowstorms of 78 yeah. and 9 hit, we sold out of Jeeps. Really? People were coming in just crying for one. I think every story from my grandparents uh, is always about the Jeep getting stuck in a field somewhere. I think every farm probably had a Jeep, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they were probably very utilitarian versus what today's are. I mean, they were probably not too far removed from what they were in the war. Or... No, just not 
Not too much in the way of accessories and yeah. those uh, CJs. Yeah. But, of course, the other ones, Wagoneer, the Grand Wagoneer was really, really a wonderful unit. Uh, they're going to bring that back. Yeah, they, they've kind of been come, but it's never the same as those old ones. I mean, no. I, I saw a Comanche truck from the, like the '90s on on for sale the other day, and I thought this might be my car of the week because there's something about that rugged Jeep frame, yeah. you know, on a, on a utility truck platform that's just something different than these new trucks that come out. They're not, they're nothing even close. They're not a shadow of the old ones. <laughs> I, that's my opinion. No, I, I tend <laughs> to. We had the Scrambler in those days. Yeah, Scrambler truck. Yeah. It's kind of the longer wheelbase mm-hmm. with the CJ style, right. so, and and Chrysler didn't buy Jeep until the late eighties. Is that right? Right. So it was still part of American Motors, but Jeep was another one of those makes after the war that got bounced around. Didn't Kaiser own them for a while? Mm-hmm. Did, really? Yeah. I, I, who else? Somebody else I thought owned them for a bit. Well, Willys was the original manufacturer. Willys Overland. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it, it moved around, but Jeep's always been kind of a hot commodity because I think people always have that that nostalgic feel of a uh, rugged kind of American yeah. four-wheel drive. What, what about Porsche? Were you involved with Porsche at all? No, I. that was a, a dealership in Peoria. Okay. Jim, Jim had that. Okay, yeah, we'll get to Jim here in just a second. Um, so, well, what year did you uh, get out of the business? Or what, 84. What, what, what inspired you to get out of the business? Were you, just, you were just done? 22%. That was it? That was, that was it. And Mercedes was on an allocation system according to population, and we were on the bottom rung. I was getting two cars a month. Yeah. I couldn't live on that. Yeah. The dealership couldn't, and uh, the popularity of, uh, of AMC was going down because yeah. they weren't renewing. They were just, uh, they weren't giving us any new models. It was just the old ones hashed over. <laughs> and, uh like the, Which was uh, all right, but uh, after a while, your customers want something new, and yeah. so I couldn't see any any uh, any way for the future. It was just sit there and lose money every day because of the interest. Yeah. No. So in '84, I'm trying to think of what AMC was offering: the Eagle, mm-hmm. right? The Eagle sedan and the, the wagon. The Eagle didn't take off as as you would have expected was a four wheel drive. Yeah. They had a lot of business out west, but. Around here, just a few people. I'm trying to think of what else they, what other types of cars. Hornet, Gremlin. Hornet, Gremlin. Pacer. Pacer, yeah. I was yeah. just thinking about that. I didn't know if you were still in business with the Pacer. I thought that was maybe after. When that first came out, it was a very hot car, and then after really? a while it cooled off. They even put a V8 engine in that. Yeah, they had a little 304 you could get, mm-hmm. and actually it, it moved pretty well. <laughs> but the uh, But the whole... Yeah, AMC franchise. They, I mean, they probably made some really, really good cars. But like you said, I think the Eagle could trace its origins back to the Hornet. I mean, body wise, mm-hmm. it's oh, the it, same. It was same thing. Same thing. So for to run that same platform for fifteen plus years, yeah. eventually, yeah, probably people get tired of it. Now we were talking about Mitt earlier, not to bring him in, but I knew Mitt from Midtown Imports. And so you had family members working for you? Mitt worked for me. Yeah. Did you have other family members? Was it a family fair at all? Well, uh, my my daughter was a cashier in service department, mm-hmm. and my wife was worked in the office. Linda was your daughter. Mm-hmm. That's right, Linda Black. Right. I, I worked with Linda for years, and right. uh, God, God bless her soul, I, I loved her to death. Uh, she, she could be so firm. 
you know, you'd come in there with your car and say, I got a problem. And she would just lay it out in line and say, listen, this is how it's going to be. And if you don't like it, tough luck. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I love the fact she was always matter of fact about everything. Uh, but she was an icon down there. I mean, she, uh-huh. from my time in, in peak and I, I moved here in the mid nineties and I always dealt with her, uh, for, we had a Volkswagen, we had two Mercedes. Yeah, you had a big German car household. I, I, yeah. I was a German guy. I, I still have a hard time admitting that I was being a Toyota guy for the last 25 years. But, uh, but yeah, no, Linda was great. Um, so when you sold, you sold to Jim Keaton or did you sell to a, I, he worked with somebody out of Atlanta. Jim Keaton worked for John Ellis, who okay. was a Mercedes dealer in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. How did that happen? How did Atlanta, Georgia? Well, he was all, he was a Chevrolet dealer in, uh, Decatur was it? I think it was Decatur. Okay. And uh, as that business bloomed and bloomed, he had this opportunity to get Mercedes in Atlanta. He got that, and then once he had that, Jeez, he had be Porsche huge. down there yeah. too, and they had Infinity, and they had a lot of a lot of great makes. Oh yeah, in Atlanta. And then he started expanding. He okay. bought Alton Mercedes. Okay. And. And he he bought us first, but uh, hey, Jim was his right hand man, and Jim worked for him for all those years. Okay, because they had uh, Porsche in Peoria and Audi. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. And was all that the- part of the Volkswagen dealer in in Peoria? Or no, was it he was separate. I think he might have had that later on Volkswagen too. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, Jim. So Jim Keaton. We've talked about Jim Keaton on our show before because I, I had dealings with Jim a lot. Uh, I was actually a vendor rep for a company, and I, first off, I never saw Jim leave that office. Jim was always in that office. He's a great automobile man. He yeah. really knew used yeah. cars yeah. better than anybody I knew. His ads in the paper mm-hmm. were epic. Mm-hmm. He, he'd, he'd write he'd write an ad as long as a sheet for a Journal Star ad. Yeah. It was insane. Nobody was doing stuff Super like that. Super descriptive. Yeah, and and then he'd he'd write just the biggest story in in paint pen on the window of the car. Nice. He, he'd t- he, there'd be a novel written on that car out there. So <laughs> if you were there on a Sunday, you knew that that car went to homecoming with his daughter, and you know, blah blah. I mean, he he was something else. Yeah, he's a great automobile man. He he just ate and slept automobiles. That was his life. Really, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was just really into it. Yeah. So did you have fond relationship with those guys after you'd sold out or? Yeah, what well, we had, we, uh, I never had a bit of problems with Jim. Jim and I were good friends and I wished him well. And, uh, of course they had it pretty easy. They walked in. All my employees were there. The yeah. business was there. Yeah. So they just walked in and, and Jim and, uh, his, uh, son-in-law yes. was the sales manager. I can't remember his name right now, but yeah, and, uh, I remember. So they they didn't really bring any people over. Yeah, just a couple of them. Of course, that evolved. They had more and more. They changed, but yeah. down through the years. But yeah, which is now a lot of this. It went it went to Suits, and now it's Auto House of Peoria, and now Auto House is getting supposedly bought out. So okay. there'll be another iteration. I mean, literally, in the last twenty years, you're going to see like five different versions of. You that. don't hear very much about Auto House in Peoria. They don't advertise. Yeah. Yeah, not so much. You hear, was it Isringhausen? Is that the big one in Springfield? Mm-hmm. You hear a lot about them. And uh, uh, does Grossinger have? Grossinger's Bloomington. Okay. But that, but that was also Sud's. Sud's, Sud's yeah. was over in Bloomington originally, right. the small Mercedes store. I mean, when did Sud's take over in Bloomington? When did they start competing with you guys? Would it be in the seventies? 
Mm, it was after I left. Oh, was it really? Yeah. So okay, it was after your time. They had uh, several, two or three different dealers before Suits. Okay. Yeah, and then Suits moved over here to then uh, the rest is history on that, and then they sold out everything except for the Suits building, which Daryl saw the Suits building in Pekin today. Yeah, <laughs> big letters on top there. Perennially for sale. It's always for sale, right? Still can't understand that purchase. <laughs> Nobody can. It seemed like prime real estate at the time. <laughs> so, speaking of people and personalities, what are some? Do you have any favorite customer stories or famous people that you sold vehicles to, or anything you you could share? Well, one time we uh, we were told that uh, the president of Caterpillar was looking for a car, and and uh, some of his uh, people were our good customers and they said why don't you call him up and uh, take him for a ride so I called him up and uh, we made arrangements I picked him up at his house and as soon as I picked him up he started to give me the history of Caterpillar (laughs) (laughs) and instead of talking about the car (laughs) we spent the next hour and a half driving around listening to him talk about Caterpillar (laughs) but he was the nicest man yeah Louis, Louis Newmiller. Yeah. Oh, what a wonderful person. And uh, finally, on the way back, we started to talk about the car. <laughs> he wound up buying the car. Well, that's good. That's, that's, and it paid what, off. <laughs> what a wonderful customer. And after that, uh, we had several high officials at Caterpillar for customers and yeah. presidents and head of the engineering department. Of course, those, those people were very influential. Yeah, so, I mean, was Mercedes a luxury brand back then? Oh, absolutely. So yeah. did, did, were you known for taking care of customers differently at a Mercedes store back then? Versus well, we always domestic? tried to. We, okay. we picked up the car uh, if they demanded that. Uh, yeah. And uh, had people to, to do that, but, you know, that takes a lot a lot of time off your dealership. Oh, a lot of resources, for yeah. sure. But but it was definitely a cut cut above service for those customers. Well, yeah, doctors especially, they like to have their car picked up because they were so busy. Yeah. And we could understand that. It's more convenience, you know, more than anything else. Sure. I remember as a kid, my grandparents lived in uh, the Orlando area, and during the early 80s, everybody still had diesel cars back then. That was still very much diesel territory. I remember the Gulf stations down there, diesel was like 55 cents a gallon, right. and gas was you know much higher. And everybody else in their neighborhood, they had a diesel Cadillac. This is during oh, yeah. a GM diesel debacle. But their neighbors, a lot of them had you know the 300 SDs. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, when, when their neighbors, there's an Italian family that ran an import-export food business, they went out and bought a pair of his and hers 300 SDs with a turbo diesel. And I remember thinking they were the coolest, coolest car. They were that beautiful gold color, and they had every option on Two them. doors or four doors? They were four doors. Okay. They were both sedans. I mean, I get one coupe maybe in a sedan, but... Yeah, I would have I would have alternated it. But I, as a kid, I remember thinking, those are, those are the neatest things. Did the turbos on those cars really... Were they needed? Uh, were, I mean, prior to that, I, I always heard people talk about older Mercedes diesels being reliable but slow. Did the turbo really wake those things up? That made the difference. Uh, when they put the turbo in the big car, it really brought up the sales. And then they put it in the smaller car, the regular 300D four-door sedan. And that, that really, t- people didn't want to buy anything else but that. Really? Yeah, the turbo. That's of course, you still have the 240 buyers that liked, like to shift and yeah. get the highest uh, 
fuel economy, but that, that, that turbo really made a difference. The joy to drive. Yeah. When you did uh, when you did work back there in the day, what would uh, what would you drive for your daily driver? Would you grab something off off the lot and take some home? We we really didn't have enough new car inventory to have demonstrators for salesmen and all that, so we actually drove used cars. I would take the the best used Mercedes and drive it, and uh, invariably that's the one that people want to buy. Yeah. There is something to say of it. You talk about kind of an influence and, and having someone, you know, someone at Caterpillar buy something and then, oh, well, maybe I want to buy a Mercedes too. Is it still very much like that word of mouth? Was that how it was back then? Like somebody sees a vehicle, somebody hears somebody talk about how great it is, and then two weeks later they're they're looking at one. Oh, absolutely. Especially if you have a satisfied customer and he's really enthusiastic about his car, he's the best salesman you have. Yeah. And you're there picking up his car for service, so somebody else is like, well, what's that all about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's just the service I get with Mercedes. Marketing, marketing efforts back then. Did you get co-op money from Mercedes USA to kind of do some of that, or was it all on, on the dealers to market their own? Practically all on us. When we first started out, they had a very unusual way of advertising. They only wanted full-page ads. <laughs> oh, God. And it was based on the number of cars that you sold, so I might have to, to sell... Ten cars in order to have enough money to have a full page ad. Those aren't cheap today. And I can't we imagine kept they were telling cheaper. Them we don't want a full page ad. I wondered about that because you'd, you'd you'd open up some newspapers and have to see giant ads for Mercedes dealers. You're like, what is this all about? But that that was their demand, huh? That, that was well. That's big city thinking, yeah. and their uh, advertising agency was in New York, so that's the way they thought. Yeah, completely but, different than the Midwest. So did you ever go to Germany? or? Oh, yes. Did you? Yes. When they had a new model, uh, they had one in uh, 67, and uh, we won a trip for four. We came out second in the United States based on our uh, sales goals. And back in those days, if you had a hot car, it would take four to six months to get it. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> Jeez. I ordered a lot of those cars in the fall, and they came in in the spring, yeah. and that's when, that's when the time came. It for paid it. off. Yeah, it paid <laughs> off. So we we hit over a, over a hundred percent of our objective and got second in the country. <laughs> that's great. But then uh, when they had another new model, uh, you had to pay to get over there, and uh, once you're there, you're their guests. Yeah. But everybody bought a demo in those days. Okay. And uh, you took it out on the Autobahn, and we had about another week that we could look around in Germany. Okay. And that was an unusual experience, getting on the Autobahn with a brand-new car, because they all wanted to drive slow. Yeah, yeah. And you almost got run over. <laughs> yeah. I imagine you're careful to break things in. Right? right. Yeah. But nowadays, I don't even think they tell you that break-in almost seems like a thing of the past, which bothers yeah. me as a... You know, kind of a gearhead. I, I don't know. Well, the thing I would say to that is the manufacturing process is so much cleaner than it used to be. You know, right. the, the way things were milled and cleaned back in the day versus the way it's handled now, it's completely different. So I don't, I don't think there's metal fragments floating around so much right. in your engine block like there used to be. Break in oil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're, uh, you're, you're talking about some of the newer models that came on in, in that time. Was that the 280? Is that the 280? Was a big seller. Was right. that big? Mm-hmm. And it came in a hardtop or four-door sedan. And uh, we sold a few wagons in those days, too. 
before the SUVs <laughs> and what came into popularity. What were some of the big selling features for folks? Because I, I, I often hear people say they made the leap to European cars in, in the 80s after growing up in a Ford or Chevy household or things like that, or Chrysler, uh, because of the safety features. You know, the 70s, were, that's where the inertia belts came in and the five-mile-an-hour bumpers and uh, airbags and things like that. So what, what was, was that a, always a big selling feature for well, European makes? In European makes, of course, they don't have the speed limits over there. <clears throat> and they came out with a crash zone at front and rear with Mercedes in order to protect the, the occupants. And when we went over there for the first time, we saw buses and cars just in a huge acreage that were destroyed from crashes, intentionally crashed, in order to prove that what they were doing was good. And uh, that really made a difference. Wow. You stop and think of that. Yeah. When you get a head-on collision and walk away from it, that's almost unheard of. Yeah, I never thought about that, but, yeah, the Europeans were, were forefront on that. I remember watching a, a video. Uh, it was an old film strip or something. We were talking about crash testing. I think it was in when I was in uh, driver's ed in high school. You know, you, they show you all the the crash up movies of what not to do, but they showed some. Fo- it was a film strip from the early seventies from Mercedes Benz, and it was on a test track somewhere in Germany. Mm-hmm. And it was a gentleman who it wasn't a crash test dummy or anything like that. It was a real human being, and he was in a one of the full size. I guess it'd be an S class sedan. And he hit, same thing, he hit a, a stationary object on the test track going 55 miles an hour. Wow. And it was with the, the belt that tightens up bef- right before impact. It kind of gets a couple clicks. And he smashes this thing. And then, like you said, 10 seconds later, just takes his seatbelt off and walks out the car. Fine. And that's the type of crash test that they were doing in Germany, I think. Wow. Versus here in the States, it would be, you know, let's ram a car into a wall with a dummy in it. Yeah. Right. So Germany was, it seemed like much more committed. I think the first car I rode in. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want that job. I don't either. <laughs> Hopefully he was rewarded handsomely. But I, I, the first car I rode in as a kid with anti-lock brakes was a Mercedes. And I, we were driving down, driving down the road with some friends' parents and a deer jumped out in front of us, and I remember it was rainy. It was kind of uh, almost October, November weather, and we hit the brakes going 50 miles an hour, and car stopped like that. And I remember thinking, you know, the old family, the old Le Mans station wagon my folks had wouldn't do something He'd like that. He'd still be sliding. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's uh, it's the disc brakes that uh, we really enjoyed when they first came out with those. Then they went all the way around, four-wheel disc brakes. yeah. Yep. And uh, European cars was first with those, and it gradually came over here to this country. But, boy, what a savior that was to go to disc brakes. Yeah. I had one other story. Uh, back in 67, they took us all out on the track, and they ran this high bank track at over 100 miles an hour, and they put us in a stretch 600 limo. <laughs> <laughs> and we were doing over 100 miles an hour like this going around the track. Where was that at? That's in Stuttgart. In Stuttgart. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's amazing. But everyone on the trip had a chance to get in a car and go around the track. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So what did you do after you uh, sold the dealer? Did you uh, go into business or did you just fully retire? I was going crazy uh, being retired, and uh, I couldn't play golf every day at 56. <laughs> And I talked to uh, Fred Brinkman one day, 
and he was the Cadillac dealer, you know, in those days. And uh, he said, why don't you come down and sell Cadillac, because uh, you've always sold a luxury car, and I think you'd you'd enjoy it. You wouldn't have the pressure of ownership, and you could uh, more or less establish your own hours. If you want to go out and play golf, you could do that. I said, boy, that sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I wanted to get out of the house, and I was driving my wife nuts with nothing to do. And this couldn't like get a... the car business out of my blood, so it worked out well. I worked, uh, Fred died about uh, nine months later, unfortunately. And uh, when Veldes came in, of course, I'd known Bruce for years and years and uh, Rory Griggs. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a pleasant relationship for the next uh, eight or so years. And I enjoyed it there. You could just uh, come in and, and uh, enjoy selling cars. Yeah. And uh, being up on the latest models and so on. So, what's in your garage right now? Well, I, I had the. Uh, I was loyal to General Motors after working for him okay. all, all that time, and uh, I've been driving Buick. Driving Buick? Because okay. they had the big body. Okay. I would have liked to have had another Mercedes, but you're talking about an S body, and you're talking about big money, and Huge just money. to drive around locally, I yeah. don't need that. Daryl and I always have a fondness for like our favorite cars from when we grew up. Is there a car that you look back on that you you loved and and you always always think about? Well, any of those uh, Studebaker Hawks was always a a big uh, thing. And when we had Avanti, of course, I was a dealer then, but uh, that was that was really a, a joy to drive that car. Yeah, and it continued on even after they got out of business. I actually worked with the woman whose dad was, uh, Newman was their last name, mm-hmm. and they actually bought right. yep. the rights to make the Avati too. Right. And she actually, uh, I think she had three of those. Newman and Altman. Yep, yep. That's a fantastic story. There's actually, uh, well, I don't think they do it anymore, but they used to have a, a, a car show at the Pekin Airport. Mm-hmm. And every year there was a uh, kind of a rose metallic colored Avati that would show up, and it was an all-original car, white bucket seats. Uh-huh. Unbelievable, and and how beautiful the the Raymond Lowy design on that car, fiberglass body. It was like if you took a Corvette and sent it to charm school. That's what an Avanti was. It was a beautiful machine. Well, yeah, we saw an Avanti last night on uh, the uh, big car show from Las Vegas. Oh, the big what, Barrett Jackson. Barrett Jackson. Okay. Uh-huh. And uh, the uh, I was trying to think of. Uh, how many manufacturers took over the Avanti after they went out of business? It's amazing. But that car is still going. Yeah, they still manufacture. <laughs> yeah. I think for a while it was on like a Monte Carlo chassis yeah. and had a GM motor and drivetrain. but It was higher priced than the Corvette. Was it really? Yeah, so you had a limited market. But uh, it all fiberglass, it was completely different. Yeah. Weren't used to that. Yeah. What was the motor? Was it a 289? Mm-hmm. So, could you get a supercharger in those? Uh-huh. Ooh. Okay. That's a beautiful car. You know, we're we, uh, oh. I took the uh, Pontiac dealer in those days, Vern Lewis, and uh, Bernard Abel, who had uh, the cemetery out here in oh, Pekin. Yeah. Abel Monument. For a, a test drive one day, and Bernard wanted to drive, and he was a car fanatic. We took it down Fifth Street at 130 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and the corn was up. Out towards South Beacon. And a tractor pulled out 
and I thought all three of us were going to the heavenly gates. <laughs> and somehow he messed that tractor, and when he got back, Vern Lewis said, never again. And, well, he was mad. Uh, oh, that's I can the imagine. fastest I've ever been in a car. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. You know, I, I think we asked about all of our questions. Is there anything we missed? That you want to talk about? Or? Oh, there's there's a hundred things we could talk about, yeah. but uh, that's that's a pretty good description of what happened in the old days. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think the scariest thing of this conversation for me is knowing that you and your wife, this many years out of the business, are still watching Barrett Jackson. This this does not bode well for Daryl and I. Yeah. twenty or thirty years from now, right? It's so the <laughs> the, the car hobby, the car interest, it's a sickness, right? You never lose it. You ne- it never goes away. No, it never does. No, that's right. <laughs> Motor trend every month. Yeah. Oh, seriously. You still, wow, still on top of it? Oh, yeah. Try to be. That's great. Yeah. Fascinating. And the stories, too, about uh, just kind of laying the landscape of what it was like back then as a dealer, I think it's just fascinating part of history because, especially nowadays for, for younger folks, they can go online and read things, but it's really only a couple people's perspectives. To actually have, uh, you know, some uh, history from someone who was there involved in it i think is, is truly priceless so appreciate well, you taking the time what we all know is when the story is first told and it goes to through several different people it never winds up the same as what it started yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, are, are, you, are you happy you got in the car business oh yes i loved it yeah yeah i i think the the nice thing i've been in the business now for about 30 years going on that you start to know everybody in town I mean, you start to be, and, and you don't even have to really be the owner of a dealership. I mean, just even being somebody who is in contact with customers every day and like my service department, you just start, after years and years of doing that, your circle of, of people you know starts growing and growing. Oh, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. yeah. It, it's rewarding in that way. Of course, I was fortunate being a punching the cash register 10 years old. <laughs> I get to, get to know a lot of people in those days. Yeah. So I had a head start. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, that's all I got. Yeah, I think so. George, thanks so much for your time today and Not at all. sharing your stories. Just hope you enjoyed all the information. No, I think I think all of our listeners will, listeners will too. Again, thanks for opening your house to us. We really appreciate it. Sure. And that's all for the George Barris interview. Thanks for listening. And we appreciate all the feedback. Everybody, if you uh, want to share some thoughts with us or you have some other folks who might be uh, you know, interesting to talk to or have a story to tell. Yeah, we're kind of, I'm kind of knocking around a few names in my head. So, yeah. And George even said something about his, like, what, his group like that he meets with monthly? Yeah, there's some heavy hitters there. So <laughs> we, might, we might rope a few of them into the podcast here. But uh, if you've got some other suggestions for us, hit us up. We're at info at throwingwrenches.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, send us a message there, or, uh, you know, hit us up any other way because yeah. let's face it you He's, know how to get in touch with Daryl's us. Daryl's the king of social media hit him on LinkedIn he'll be there <laughs> right right. Right, thanks again for listening we'll see you next time bye Thorn Wrenches podcast with Daryl Scott and Eric Stahl is sponsored by Fort's Toyota of Pekin Fort's Toyota is 15 minutes from anywhere in the Tri-County area Fort's Toyota specializes in new and used Toyotas and certified Toyotas as well Check out their online inventory at www.toyota-pekin.com. You can also schedule service. Did you know that Forts offers a free pickup and delivery service within 75 miles of the dealership? Call today at 309-382-4000 for more details. Thanks again for your support, Forts. Again, that's www.toyota-pekin.com. Third Wrenches Podcast is sponsored by the Casey Law Office 
simple, easy to understand legal services for a fair cost. Casey Law Office is committed to giving each client personal service with their best interest as his focus. Casey Law Office practices in consumer law, malpractice, wills, trust, and estates, workers' compensation, and contract law. Make sure to check out CLOPeoria.com. That stands for Casey Law Office Peoria. And also make sure to check out that red Supra whenever it shows up at uh, Cars and Coffee or Friday Night Lights. You'll know it. It's got the CLOPeoria.com sticker in the back window. Thanks for your support.